Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who geek out on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. This is part two of our special edition of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, where we talk about season one of the HBO series, The Gilded Age. The Gilded Age was renewed for a second season. If you haven't watched it yet, you may want to save this podcast for another day. We invite you to listen to part one of this focus on the women of the Gilded Age, which includes a recap of the series' first season. The women of the Gilded Age occupy a space and time in the United States when women couldn't vote, Jim Crow segregation laws and practices held back African-American progress, immigrant labor was exploited, and we see an emergence of the great wealth gap. Women who aren't invited to parties hosted by New York's 400 list are coming up in the workforce, from professional work as a writer like Peggy Scott or Mabel Ainsley as stenographer for George Russell's company. Plus, there are the women who are members of the Russell's and Van Ryan's household staff. Women who take up causes like Clara Barton, who established the American Red Cross, are supported by society matrons who donate their families old and new money as a way to sustain and advance their social power. We also see how women use the arts of love and seduction and are either made or ruined by it, or both. And we'll wrap up with what we'd like to see in season two of The Gilded Age. Our conversation continues. about it being a time where, in general, there weren't many professions open to women. Of course, there was domestic service. Um, it's interesting to me that uh, George Russell has a stenographer. Uh, she is not a secretary because his, uh, what we might consider your chief operating officer, had the title secretary. Um, and noting that it was men who who held that title, and that it was a big deal to be a secretary in a company, or you could uh, be in the president's cabinet and have that title, secretary. Right, yeah, of- yeah, um, but not so much in the corporate world these days. Um, but you know, you just kind of look at ways that women tried to use their position, whether it was. Um, 
you have Mrs. Armstrong, who's a little bit of a spy for Mrs. Van Ryn. <laughs> um, you have Turner, who's operating as a spy for Oscar Van Ryn. Um, you have uh, Mrs. Bauer, who feels something is not so right and goes to the um, to Ada and Agnes and kind of warns them that Armstrong may be up to something. And so you have this kind of like world of eyes on what's going on. Um, and that's a form of power, being able to uh, know what's happening uh, and Peggy Scott, of, the journalist, who has to have her eyes on things so that she can write about it for the Well, Peggy's in a different... For the newspaper. Peggy's in a different kind of position because she's talking about, as being a writer or journalist, that's seen kind of like moving into the professional sphere. And we, we hear that this is a time when people were creating... Uh, professional pathways like Tom Rakes being a lawyer, Peggy being a writer journalist, and even uh, Mabel Ainsley being the stenographer, that those were quote unquote professions. I don't think domestic service was seen so much as a profession, though there were hierarchies and there was a status, you know, the butlers kind of like at the top, the top. of the, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. The, the thing is, um, when Peggy Scott accepts the job as Agnes's personal secretary, she is sort of doing two jobs here. She's both a journalist, a writer, and she's part of the staff, household staff, um, in, um, in the Van Ryan's household as the secretary. And she's, you know, sharing living quarters with the household staff on the same floor. So, and, and that bothers her father, who, of course, wants more for his daughter. Yeah, he doesn't want her coming through the back door. Like, no. why, would you, why would you work in a house coming through the back door when you can be part of the business and walk through the front door? Yeah, but I'm wondering if a lot of the household staff are first-generation first Americans or recent Americans, you know, how, how is that, is, is that part of their biography? Will we, and will we see more of that in, um, in the next season? Just yeah. how they got there. And those are pretty good jobs, depending on whose family you're working for, especially if you have a whole floor just for the household staff, I suppose. Um, and, um, you know, you're pretty much running running the household with not a whole lot of interference from your employer, you know, as long as you do your job and do it well. Well, domestic service was a foothold for people, particularly moving to the city or coming from other places to the United States. It was a way of having a more secure position and, um, we also see with Armstrong, it's how she supports her mother, yeah. who is in very poor circumstances. So, you know, there's a, 
and and even with um even with uh the hall boy quote unquote footman and with the housemaid uh bridget and in the russell household uh the housekeeper for them, these are big deal jobs because they've come from very, very humble circumstances. And I think the writers are trying not to do what we, we've accustomed, we're accustomed to seeing and show black household staff, even though they, there were black household staff. But where Peggy Scott's story is a story that's untold yes. about who were the strivers, the African-American strivers. And Peggy and her father would be upset that she's living with the household staff. He doesn't care if it's on Fifth Avenue or what prominent house it was. That is not where he wants his daughter to be. So, um, but I have to say, I am a bit curious about the distinction between hiring immigrant staff versus hiring black household staff. And immigrant staff primarily from... Ireland. Yeah, because I understand in this time in New York, there were also not a huge number, but a significant enough number of Chinese immigrants who also did domestic work. And so I wonder what their lives were like and where they did that work. So I'm a bit curious there. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Clara Barton played by Linda Imond, um, and also Mrs. Chamberlain, played by Jean, Jean Triplehorn, because they are in another sphere. Um, they're, they're um, you know, Clara Barton is, this is where we see her fundraising for and creating an institution, the American Red Cross, using her cachet, you know, her brand as the angel of the battlefield or whatever, um, to raise money to set up chapters that can respond to disaster, um, that can um, not only, I think, provide medical aid, but other forms of, of assistance when people find themselves in dire situations, um, tragic situations. Yeah, I really like Clara Barton as a character in the Gilded Age and as a real person. I, uh, of course, I'm going to be drawn to women with a purpose in a story. And I don't know if we'll see her again in season two. I know she's still out there in the field, but uh, she definitely, actually, she's the, she's the one where all, everyone can rally around that there's a, there's sort of Clara Barton's work is going to affect everyone in some way. Either you're going to support it with money and philanthropy you're going to show up at those fundraisers. You're going to support it by volunteering at um, with the Red Cross and doing that, or you're going to be aided <laughs> if there's a natural disaster or some kind of disaster, which there is in the Gilded Age. Um, well, it's not a natural disaster. It's actually a train wreck. A train wreck that 
you may be the beneficiary of the Red Cross's work and yeah. um, and what Clara Barton was doing. So, it's which also been, made for good press. At it made good pre- press PR. Yeah, get your PR going, and I think um, I don't know how if we'll see Clara Barton again, but you know she is one of those instances where everyone can rally around it without yeah. and not be snubbed. She's not snubbing anybody. Yeah. Yeah, she um, definitely understands. She's clear about what it is she's trying to do, and whoever will be her ally in that, she is willing to talk to them, dine with them, uh, give them uh, what they need for the black newspaper. She's she's like um, a link, yeah, between worlds. I know. I did temp work at the. Red Cross Blood Services when I graduated from college. I really loved the nurses who were working in that department. Yeah. And then Mrs. Chamberlain. Uh, Mrs. Chamberlain has a past. She's definitely a social outcast. But I feel like she has a more fun life because she knows she's not accepted. And so she has made beauty in her own surroundings by collecting the artist of the time. They're going to come. Yeah. They're going to come to, to Mrs. Chamberlain's door at some point, but yeah, she's, she's creating her world and she is, she seems to be moving towards championing visual artists and painters. And and that's a, you know, it's a love of hers. She enjoys it. Her home is filled with paintings and I like Mrs. Chamberlain. She's someone who could be a friend. And her her art is the art of the artists who at the time were the groundbreakers, the uh, outcasts from, quote unquote, the art academy, who had to create their own salons, their own exhibitions, their own spaces. And in a sense, her life mirrors what those artists had to do. Like, I think we see she has some Degas and some other impressionists yeah. in, in her home. And Mrs. Chamberlain, she's not just a social outcast. She's also a moral outcast Yeah, in the circle because she had an affair with a married man and had a baby. And, you know, well, even though... A, yeah, they had a child together. And, yes. Yeah. And even, even though, though it worked out. Yeah, you know, the... the the man became a widower. He married her. He made a respectable woman of her, but wasn't respectable enough, right? Because yeah, the woman had to bear. Does, right, marriage does not uh, secure your social standing in all instances, right? No, no. She had to bear all the heat around that. Yeah, but she seems to be making a world for herself, and and also opening that world to others who will who want to be a part of it. She's yeah. not closing the door. Right. So, uh, and, you know, we made a note about um, causes, you know, women serving on boards. And as I said, the one thing I'm getting out of the Gilded Age is looking at the um, history of philanthropy and women serving on boards and creating organizations. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the thick of it. Well, we um, also yet. see how... 
making big donations, serving on boards was, again, another way of climbing the social ladder and having an established place in the society, quote unquote, polite society. And that's something we're seeing um, a kind of uh, dismantling of that philanthropic tradition today, but it's been longstanding um, because we also, uh, if you do the little bit of historical research around philanthropy at this time, you'll see that there was the there was a conversation about were the poor poor because of systems that were unjust and unequal or were the poor poor because they didn't have the right morals and maybe if they associated with those of us from the um, from society they would improve their condition by uh, elevating their values. And we still see some of that even today in how people understand why people are poor and uh, what does it take to really um, make for a more equitable society. Yeah, there were some ugly theories coming out during this time. I think eugenics was starting, was just getting started and being embraced during this period as well. And this is, you know, pretty extensive period. I mean, we're in the 1880s, but yeah. it it went at least a couple of generations. Yeah. So, anything more we have to say about the women? I think we covered a lot of ground. Well, we can't go um we we can't ignore what might be called women's sexual power. Yes. In this time, because even why did you make yourself attractive for men? Uh, Why is it that uh, certain women um, were able to make the right matches um, because of their attractiveness or uh, their their kind of sexual um, allure for wealthy men. And that, that could help a woman like Mrs. Chamberlain, who isn't even from that, that society, but at least financially elevate her condition in the world. Yeah. And the only thing is if you slipped, you were ruined for life. Right. Um, You know, if you were known to have had sex before marriage, you know, that in certain circles was the end of your reputation, even though it was happening. Right. It was happening, but it wasn't socially acceptable. Oh, and having the baby. Oh, Mrs. Chamberlain, how could you? Yeah. Babies out of quote unquote wet. And her son goes to Chicago, which is sort of, it's a different culture from New York and away from all that, and he doesn't. Well, have you to go deal where you're it. not known, and people don't know your your background can't become a hindrance or a barrier. Yeah, yeah, and um, so and we also mentioned, I think, earlier, Turner. Yeah, yeah. Well, Turner thinks that she can uh, use sex as her 
ticket to uh, Mr. Russell's affections. Um, I'm wondering how many times she's used it before and it worked because obviously she was she's very confident about yeah. her all her abilities. Yeah, um, she is very comfortable in her in her body and um, in her interactions with men t- seems to be on equal terms. Yeah, and she also seems to think that she is above Mrs. Russell because she has worked for the old families and Mrs. Russell is looking to her for a little tutoring with regard to style and fashion and what jewelry, what's the right jewelry, what's the right outfit to wear, et cetera. So that's, that's interesting to see someone who's a servant who actually thinks they're superior to the person that employs them. And in some ways, um, Marion is almost lured, but, um, well, let's not give away too much. Yeah, we won't give away too much, but we'll, we'll see what happens with Marion. Yeah. So now we're, we've, we're taking a twist on our bonus round. We're, we're theming it for the Gilded Age, and our questions will be tailored to the characters that we've just discussed here in this podcast. So I'm going to kick it off with the first question. So to Quina, my sister, if you were a character in the Gilded Age, who among the women would you want in your social circle? Well... If I was in the Gilded Age as who I am in terms of my race and sex and gender, um, there probably aren't that many women who would have me in their social circle, which would be fine with me because the women who would are the ones I find more interesting. So, of course, I'd want to hang out with Peggy Scott and her family. Um, Because I'm really curious about that time in uh, Black Brooklyn and uh, what life was like for this emerging Black, uh, quote-unquote, educated, uh, professional business uh, group, uh, society. I think, well, Clara Barton would be cool because, um, again, she's, she's... operating in a world where she's 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 making change and she's creating institutions and she's doing things that will have a positive impact in people's lives. Um, so she would be someone I'd be interested in uh, talking to and maybe even having a cup of tea. Um, and then there's uh, Mrs. Chamberlain, because I just, uh, she's got that art. And I admire how she's surrounded herself with things that are beautiful and things that have meaning for her. Um, and is making a life for herself, even though she is not accepted in polite society. Um, so those are three women I would probably be glad to well, also Peggy's mom, who's the music teacher, Dorothy uh, Scott. I would like to know, what was it like being a f- 
free woman of color at a time when you knew so many black people were enslaved, so many people of African descent in the South were enslaved. So that, that, that would be, I guess it's not so much who'd be in my circle. Those would be the circles I'd find myself in more than likely. Okay, for me, since I'm since we're sisters, so we we share the same demographic here, based on who I am, and the times of the times of the Gilded Age, who will embrace me um, in their circle? Uh, I would probably include everyone you've you've just mentioned, Clara Barton because she has a cause, Dorothy Scott because she's a music music teacher. I like Dorothy a lot. Um, Peggy Scott, because she's a writer and working at the newspaper. And those are two things in your background, those actually. Are, yeah, those are in my background. <laughs> Mrs. Chamberlain, because she's got the art. I think they're flexible, too. I'm going to add one more, though. Aurora. I think uh. Aurora has some flexibility. And I like her insights into the society, that yeah. she knows just where to point. <laughs> And, and Ada things. would probably be nice to us. Ada would be nice to us. <laughs> you know, in some ways, Agnes might surprise you. Yeah, yeah, because she would see us as helping those who help themselves. Yes, she's a bootstrap lady. Yeah. Okay, so the next question, you take that one. So what do you want to see happening in season two of The Gilded Age? Wow, let's see, season two, season two. A lot of stuff I like to see happen. Um, one of the main things I want to see happen is there has to be some event that's affecting everybody, regardless of their class status, race, or gender. Yeah, that felt like something that was kind of missing in season one. The closest they came to it was when Thomas Edison lit up the New York Times building yeah and, and had, even then and even then people were as you were saying to me um separated you know right you're right people and maybe that's a mirror to, or segregated segregated and maybe that's sort of a mirror on what people say is happening now how in the united states you know these divisions and in many ways this series mirrors that you know you see everybody in their places but that's why I guess I'm craving that one event that everybody's going to be affected by. Maybe that's going to be something Clara Barton will be a part of um, at some point. I don't know. Oh, another thing I'd like to add is women's suffrage. Will Susan B. Anthony show up? Because women and the vote, I think at this time, that was the first wave of American women trying to get the vote. And Peggy Scott has already alluded to that. You know, I, I don't have the vote. You know, so we, we're getting hints of that. And if we're going to talk about women in power, this is going to be important. And it's also going to affect everybody concerned in this yeah, scenario. Yeah, we're still having that battle, aren't we? I think, yep. too, it would be interesting to see something about labor and labor unions. It, would there be a strike that happens? Um, do we see strike breaking in this period? I don't know. I'd have to do some 
reading about that, but we, I think we certainly begin to see the emergence of uh, movement towards labor unions in this period called the Gilded Age. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's a very, and that's something that's going to affect everyone in this story as well. Yep. Um, we talked about George and Bertha Russell going back to the old neighborhood. We want to see the old neighborhood. Yeah, we want to know their roots. Like, where is she the children of potato pickers? And how did, how did they meet? And how did they come together? How did they discover each other? Was Bertha looking for that kind of man? And when she saw George, she latched on to him and... You know, or or see them even go down, have to go downtown where they originally lived, and you know, see some of their old friends or neighbors or whatever. Yeah. One profession that is missing in this is teachers. Mm. You know, we have we a governor. Women. But no we have a, no teachers. I want to see some more, a story around women in education. I mean, Vassar was open, a college. Smith, I think, was open at that time. Oberlin was available. I know they don't want to send anyone out of the city, so I guess Vassar and Poughkeepsie is about the closest you're going to get. But, you know, there weren't a lot of options for women to get advanced degrees or a bachelor's of arts or whatever was created yeah. for women to go beyond high school and become teachers and, or writers like Peggy Scott. But um, Peggy Scott is the only one I've heard who's affiliated with an educational institution, which, by the way, one of her principals would have been Fanny Jackson Coppin, who went to Oberlin and got a Bachelor of Arts degree. Um, so I would like to see more about women and education, especially college education. Maybe Marion. Marion has an uh, artistic side, too. I'm wondering if she's going to maybe talk her aunts into taking her to Europe to do some painting, and then Larry will be there, Larry Russell. Okay, to you're study not writing I'm making up here. stories now. Okay, so that, women in education, I'll leave but it there. But maybe there's an art academy she can go to there's in New an York. Art academy. We know that um, some women in previous generations, like the Alcott sisters, there was an academy right. in Boston that um, I think the youngest Alcott's sisters studied at. So maybe we could see her at least pursue some creative endeavor. Yeah. And and not just be so preoccupied with marriage. I want to see more about immigrants in this time. And um, particularly, um, I'd like to see more about what was going on with Chinese immigrants in New York in this time. We have the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Big deal. Yeah. Um, which had an impact on who could become an American for decades. But I'd like to see the lives of folks who came here from China and what was it like for them adapting to this country that was in a kind of big transition time uh, with regard to fortunes being made and uh, an emergence of generations with a different sense of their possibilities. 
And I think that is the big overarching question of the Gilded Age and today. What does it mean to be an American? And since it, since the Gilded Age is created by Julian Fellows, I mean, one thing that the household staff and the families who own the big homes had the in estates. common, the estates had in common is that they were all British and they had a common identity around that. In the United States, what does it mean to be an American? And I think these stories can explore that we can explore that through these stories like the gilded age and that's that's a question to be um put into that narrative as well yeah and what does it mean to belong who decides um, i think the other thing when you look at a downton which i'm looking forward to seeing what they do with the film that comes out in spring um but there was a sense that the even the people who were the owners in the estate that they had an obligation to the farmers to the village to the people who worked you know the downstairs staff to provide jobs to make sure that it wasn't that the estate was viable for its own sake it was also um kind of a, a sense of responsibility to the larger community. And I think what we see in the Gilded Age is a time and a place and a people where everybody's kind of striving, um, but that striving can feel more individual than, well, that's the way I'm experiencing it, than a sense of collective responsibility and belonging. Yeah, that's and that's something I hope we could see more of in season two and looking forward to it. Catch part one of our special edition podcast on the women of HBO's The Gilded Age to get our recap of the series and conversation about how women exercise power through marriage, social connections, and their children. The Gilded Age is created and written by Julian Fellows. Executive producers include directors Sally Richardson Whitfield and Michael Angler, who directed the first Downton Abbey movie. Co-executive producers include Sonia Warfield, who writes for the series with Julian Fellows, and Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, historical advisor to the series. To our listeners, thank you for joining this podcast. Listen to past episodes of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. You will find the podcast webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Find, like, and share the Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters podcast on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, 
subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who geek out on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.